Hi there. This is Sam Musgrave, pastor over college and young adult ministry at Trinity Community Church. This podcast is a collection of the sermons from our gatherings. My prayer is that you will grow in knowledge and love for King Jesus, or maybe come to faith in him for the very first time. Join me now for this sermon. Well, would you turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We've been running through the book of Corinthians, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, at blazing speed. I'm so grateful for Stan and Scott who brought us the word over the last couple weeks as I was away. And I'm so glad to be back and to be in fellowship with you in the word. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we will be looking at the entire chapter thoroughly. As we dig into his word, rights and responsibilities has been our theme. Rights and responsibilities are measured for the Christian by the gospel. Rights and responsibilities are measured by the gospel. We have a king who died for our sins and rose to make us right with God. This is liberation. This is freedom. But how do we use that freedom? We become slaves. We are slaves of Christ. Slaves of Christ to win souls. Slaves of Christ to serve saved souls. Slaves not to our own rights, but to gospel responsibility. Slaves who beat our bodies and beat our brains as slaves for Christ's sake. That's what Paul has illustrated, that we run the race to win In other words, we're not pretending. We're not doing a religion. This is not external. We're running to win. We're running for glory. We're not shadow boxing. We're soul winners. Christians are soul winners. And the question facing us tonight is simply this. Are you a soul winner? Are you a soul winner? Because that's just another way of answering the question. Are you really a Christian? Are you really a Christian? You remember what Jesus said to his 12 disciples. He said very plainly in Mark chapter 1, he said, watch this. Here's the command. Follow me. Follow me. And here's the promise. And I will make you become fishers of men. Do you hear that? What do you have to do? Follow him. What does he do? He makes you become fishers of men. It's really simple. Jesus never told you to go bear much fruit. He said, abide in me. Stay in me. Live in me. You focus on me. You look to me. You keep your eyes set on me. I'll bear the fruit. You follow me. You chase me. You watch me. You see me. I'll make you become fishers of men. And so it raises another question. What is the conclusion if he has not made you yet a fisher of men? You have every reason in the world to question, am I really following Jesus? Because he promised he would make me a fisher of men if I follow him. 
Spiritual activities, spiritual experience and activities are not proof of salvation. Billions of people around the globe have spiritual experiences. Billions of people around the globe engage in spiritual activities. Look at the living example of the Old Testament. That's right. It's a living example. The Old Testament. And deal with the fact that not everything we have a right to do helps us. Not everything we have a right to do helps us because freedom in Christ is ultimately a glad, happy slavery to the salvation of souls. It is a wonderful thing. I was in London. I took a lot of cab drives across the city. I had the right to be quiet in that cab. And I made it an objective to share the gospel with every one of my cab drivers. And it was a joy. I just thought, what would Jesus do if he was sitting in this cab? And I had so much fun sharing the gospel with them, knowing I'm going to be able to get out of this car. If it gets really uncomfortable, I'm going to be able to get out of this car and run. And most of my cab drivers ended up being Muslims. Actually, 90% of my cab drivers were named Mohammed. It was interesting. And that, that's what I used. I said, name's Mohammed. Are you a Muslim? Yes, I am. I said, oh, then you respect Jesus, right? Yes, I do. I said, do you really know the truth about who he is? Yes, of course. You're the one that's got it wrong. That's what they would say. And I'd say, I beg to differ. And then we'd spar for the next 40 minutes. First point tonight. First point of four. Spirit, spiritual activity is not salvation. Spiritual activity is not proof of salvation. Look with me at verses one to five. Paul says, for I do not want you to be unaware brothers that our fathers now notice here I'm going to give you a little hint notice what word keeps coming up our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. What's the emphasis? What's Paul wanting to land home here? There's something that united all of Israel in the exodus out of Egypt. What was the repeated emphasis? All of them, all of them, all of them, all the Hebrews shared in spiritual experience, shared in the same spiritual activities. What was true of all in the Exodus? They all had the same spiritual experiences. And we would be right to imagine theirs. I mean, think about it. Yahweh, the living God who created heaven and earth, who created the universe, everything that exists, he made. Yahweh led that people by a tornado that caught on fire at night. 
and went from before them to behind them to break them off from the Egyptians so that they could cross the Red Sea. He parted the Red Sea like alfalfa's hairline. I mean, they walked right through it on dry ground. Our baptism, as Christians, we get dunked in a tank of water. They walked through standing walls of ocean with Moses. Not Pastor Chuck or Andre or Sam, but Moses, who authored the first five books of the Bible. They ate sky bread. They ate rock water. I mean, it was a miraculous journey. That dwarfs our spiritual experience in terms of its demonstrative, impressive nature. And just like Christ, 1400 years later, that rock was struck to gush forth life for the nation. Verse 4. 4. They were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ say what i mean that, that what paul what did you just say they were drinking water from a rock that followed them wherever they went and the rock was Messiah. What is Paul becoming some sort of a strange mystic on us? Well, no. Who comes calling himself bread from heaven, living water, the rock of our salvation? You might say, yes, but Sam, those are metaphors. He wasn't literally bread, he wasn't literally water, he wasn't literally a stone. Well, such are symbols that God gave of Christ. The manna was actual bread. The water was actual H2O. The rock was actual sediment or whatever. But God provided supernaturally. That's why these things are referred to by Paul as spiritual It's not that they were non-physical. They served a spiritual purpose as well as their physical purpose. Wherever Israel went, they always had bread from the sky and water from a rock. And it followed them wherever they went. As they journeyed, they had the bread. They had the rock that produced water. Now, what does it mean that the rock was Christ? Was it Jesus back there in the Old Testament pretending to be a stone? And if you lifted it up, you saw his little face under there talking. I mean, clearly not. That's not what's being communicated here. Watch this. As a matter of fact, turn with me. Keep your finger in 1 Corinthians 10. Turn with me to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, the last book that Moses authored Deuteronomy 32 records the song of Moses long after the events of the Exodus. So this is, this is at the end of all of it, looking back on the events of the Exodus 
And what is the favorite name of Moses for Yahweh? What is his favorite name for Yahweh? Look at verses 4, 15, 18, 30, 31 of chapter 32. Verse 4. The rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness. And without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. Verse 15. But. Speaking of Israel. Jeshurun. Abandoned God. Who made him. And treated the rock of his salvation with wicked foolishness. Verse 18. You neglected the rock who begot you. And forgot the God who brought you forth. Indeed, verse 31. Indeed, their rock is not like our rock. Even our enemies themselves judged this. I don't think that Paul is saying the rock that sprouted water was Christ. I think what Paul is saying is the rock was a symbol. The manna was a symbol. There were many symbols that were foreshadowing the eternal salvation of Christ. But the rock of Deuteronomy 32, the rock who is Yahweh, the rock of their salvation is none other than the person of Jesus Christ. The rock isn't Dwayne Johnson. The rock is Yahweh. And Paul says, the rock who is Yahweh is Christ. Who does that make Christ? This is rich Christology. Who is Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ is Yahweh. Jesus Christ is I am who I am. Jesus Christ is the God who saved Israel from Egypt. You want proof? Let's go to Jude 5. Flip in your Bibles. Jude 5, a little bit harder to get. I'm going to have you guys trust me on this one. I'm going to read Jude 5. Okay, you could go check me out um, later on. Jude says, now, I want to remind you, though you know all things. In other words, he says, listen, I know you know the story about Exodus. I know you know the book of Exodus. I know you know about Moses and the Israelites coming out of Egypt. I know you know all the stuff that, listen carefully, that Jesus, having once saved a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. He didn't say God. He didn't say the Lord. He said, Jesus, he got that name at his incarnation, 1400 years after the events of the Exodus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He says, no, no, no. It was the second person of the Trinity who became the human Jesus. He's the one who led Israel out of Egypt, specifically him. He was the one that spoke from the burning bush. He was the one that sent the plagues on Egypt. He's the one who parted the Red Sea. That's why Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 10, you can go back there and land. That's where we're going to spend the rest of the night. Paul says, I don't want you to be unaware. You're going to miss this. The rock who bore them. The rock of their salvation. The God who is their rock, Yahweh, was Christ. 
who came in flesh, who hung on a tree, who died for the sins of his people, who bled. It was Christ. Just amazing stuff. Verse 5, nevertheless, with most of them, those Israelites, God was not well pleased, for they were struck down in the wilderness. You getting it? Christ did all those miracles for all those Hebrews. They all enjoyed the benefits of all those spiritual experiences, and then Christ killed most of them. Spiritual activity, spiritual experience, not proof of salvation. He was patient, and then he was more patient, and then he was patient still as they sinned and complained and rebelled. My friend, listen. Perhaps you've been toying with the Lord. Perhaps you've been playing around with this Christ and he's been patient and he's been patient and he's been patient. Don't test his patience. The Old Testament is a living example. Look at verses 6 to 14. Now, these things happened as examples for us. He's going to repeat that phrase in verse 11. Christ, the God of Exodus, is the one who died on Calvary's cross for the sins of his people. Verse 6, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. A professing Christian, you're here, you're perhaps saying that you believe in Jesus. Could you be fooling yourselves as the Hebrews did? That's what Paul's putting before us. Do, do we think that we are safe because we were baptized and we take the Lord's Supper in church? Paul says it's much more impressive that they had bread falling from the sky and water sprouting from a rock. You want to talk about spiritual experience. And most of them died. That is, we're damned. <laughs> Are we relying on spiritual experiences as we actively still live for our evil cravings? That's what he's saying. Are you living in unrepentant sin while you're doing the external religious things? You drink the cup, you eat the bread, praise the Lord, sing the songs, pray the prayers, sit in the seat, but secretly you're just thinking about, I can't wait to get back to that sin. I just want that sin. You're still in slavery. You're still in Egypt. Do we claim Christ while we crave created things? Idols, sex, testing Christ's patience and complaining about all that he's allowing in my life or all that he's not allowing in my life because those are the sins that are specifically mentioned here in this context. Idols, sex, testing Christ's patience and complaining. Look with me as he lists these. Verse 7, do not be idolaters as some of them were. You remember the golden calf 
They couldn't wait to make a god, make member. They, the, the whole point of that golden calf was not, not that it was some other god. They said, this is Yahweh. We just want some visible way to, to represent Yahweh. A young, strong bull made of gold. Ah, we'll worship that. Yahweh. Don't be idolaters. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. You might read that and think, what in the world does that have to do with this? He's taking it directly from the narrative. And the point is this. They only stopped their idol worship to eat and drink. And then they went back to their revelry. They went back to their orgy around this idol. They only broke. They only took rest to eat and drink. And then they got up to play with their stupid little idol. Um, let me ask some, some of us. will only stop the social media, the video games, the, the entertainment to eat and drink. Some of us are currently living that way, that, we're, that we only stop the, the devouring of the worldliness to just eat and drink, and then we go back to it. He says, just, just like them. Verse 8, Nor let us act in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. He's talking about how Jewish men there among Israel began to whore with Moabite women. This should search us. 23,000 fell in a single day. And I wonder, wonder how many are ensnared in the grip of pornography in a way that there's no grief in your heart over the sin, the sexual sin, or fornication or whatever does it have you in its bondage are you a slave for its pleasures are you living for it can can you think of nothing else except to get back to it the holy spirit who's patient and gentle and forgiving and gracious and merciful is saying Don't presume upon my patience. He wants us to see very vividly in the Old Testament examples, illustrations that are meant for our instruction. He goes on, thirdly, verse 9, nor let us put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. You remember the Hebrews, they, they got out and they had, had it a little bit rough in the wilderness, out in the desert. It was hot, it was, it was uncomfortable, and, and they said, we want to go back to Egypt. We'll go back and we'll be slaves so long as we can eat our leeks and our cucumbers. We just want some remnant of comfort, even though we hated our lives back there. Did you really count the cost? Of following Christ. Did you really know? It it means you're going to take up your cross. And follow him to death. And it's wonderful. It's hard and wonderful. What sins maybe are you harboring? What thoughts of your life back in the world. Do you remember with fondness. And think oh if only I could go back into the world. Verse 10, 
nor grumble as some of them did. And they were destroyed by the destroyer. This word grumble is one of my favorite Greek words. It's the word gonguzdo, and it's an onomatopoeia. I think I'm using the right word, right? Onomatopoeias are words that are invented that sound like the things they describe, correct? Gonguzdo is the way Greeks imagine complaining sounding like. Okay, so gonguzdo. You know, you're just mumbling under your breath. You're complaining under your breath. You're murmuring. You're, you're questioning God. You're doubting his goodness. You're suspecting his heart. You're disliking his use of his sovereignty at the moment in your life. You see, complaining, notice this, complaining is as serious a sin as idolatry, as sexual immorality. Boy, that helps us, doesn't it? Helps me, it convicts me. It can at some times feel easy, like, yeah, I don't have any idols in my life. I'm, I'm not doing anything particularly sexually immoral. But boy, do I complain a lot. A lot. And anyone close to me can validate that fact. And God says, are you so displeased with my wise, loving, good control of your life? I'm a good father. My children lack no good thing. And I say, ah, if you just give me the control, I would change so much with my infinite wisdom. Verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have arrived. We are in the last days, my friends. Messiah Jesus, King Jesus Christ, Jesus has come into history. God has entered into the, the, the duration of humanity. He has come. He has borne the weight of God's wrath against the sins of his people. He is expanding and populating his kingdom. He is going to return to judge the living and the dead. He's going to return to reign forever and ever with the people that he bought with his blood. We are in imminency. We are living in second by second the most exciting age that's ever been under the sun. And we wake up every morning stupid and bored. <laughs> Isn't it amazing? He's coming soon. He promised. Think about this. Think. What happened? What, what Paul just told us. What happened in Egypt and then through the Red Sea and into Saudi Arabia? What happened then, 1,400 years ago? was written for you and I tonight. That's what Paul just said. God was parting the Red Sea in his infinite knowledge, thinking about February 14th, 2023. Happy Valentine's Day, by the way. He had each of us, by his sovereign purpose, put right here to hear those words. And those standing walls of water, the pillar of cloud and fire, the burning bush, the manna from heaven, the rocks spouting out water, every single one of those things God did for Reagan Potter tonight. For Sawyer tonight. For Joseph tonight. 
That is fascinating. This wonderful God. The Holy Spirit had us in mind as he wrote Exodus and Numbers. Therefore, verse 12, let him who thinks he stands, you think you're, you think you're doing well in the Lord. You think you stand? You think you've got it? Let him who thinks he stands take heed. Watch out that he does not fall. Some are flirting with sin this very night. A certain idol, sex, a hard heart, a complaining spirit. Verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you. But such as is common to man. But God is faithful. Who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also. So that you will be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Listen. Satan wants you and I to keep the sin a secret. He wants us to keep it a secret. He wants us to secretly be ashamed that we are alone in this struggle. We are not alone. Our struggles are common. Common. Not unique. Common. Everyone struggles with them. And to the extent that you feel that voice say, no, they don't. They won't know. They won't understand. They won't relate. That's the enemy. That's a wily flesh. And a prosecuting Satan. Take advantage of the time after the word is preached. Go to your brothers. Go to your sisters. Beg them for prayer. And know that your struggles are common among them. And crush right there at the head. The the spitting fangs of the viper. He says, keep it a secret. They won't understand. Now, what's more comforting, infinitely more comforting than knowing that everyone else struggles with our struggles? God is faithful. God is faithful. The only thing more comforting than knowing that every other person in this room is as unfaithful as I am is that God is faithful. God is faithful. As you and I and everyone else is faithless. God is faithful. Will there ever be a weakness. From which our God does not offer escape. Sin is way more than we can bear. But God. Almighty. All powerful God. Helps us endure. What's the application? What must we do? How should this affect our hearts? Run. 
Run from idolatry. Run from the things that you're tempted to love more than Christ Jesus. Until they are bitter to your taste, Christ will not be sweet. Run. Run from them. Run to him. Brett and I, we were sitting down talking about this a a few weeks ago. The solution to everything is look to Jesus. Look at him. Look to him. Look to him. Look to him. You catch sight of your sin? Take ten glances at him. Third point. Not everything you can do helps you. Verses 15 to 23. Can you play sports? Can you play video games? Can you shop? Can you spend time on social media? Sure. But do any of those things necessarily help you follow Christ? See, this is what is getting all up in our business. Verse 15. He says, I speak as to prudent people. You judge what I say. And all God's people, if paying attention to what Paul just said, say, ow, Paul. (laughs) Talk about backhanded compliments. Speaking as if to wise people. (laughs) Ow, that hurts. Verse 16. And following. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless... A sharing in the blood of Christ. What do you think he's talking about? The Lord's Supper, isn't he? Communion. Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? Where's Paul been aiming? What issue is he targeting? The Corinthians have been parading their rights. The Corinthians have learned something of theology. And this theological elevation has gone over and above the significance of the love feast at the Lord's table. See, they've gotten really distracted with talking about the significance of the bread and the significance of, of the wine. And is there really something going on there? Is Christ really present? Or is it, you know, they're getting distracted with all these debates, all this theology. They've, they've grown heady and they've forgotten that theology only serves love. See, theology, knowledge of who God is, it, it, it's to make us lovers of God. It's to make us lovers of one another. It, it's a handmaiden, theology is. And we treat that, we've made an idol of that even. I'm reading Edwards, I'm reading Owen, I'm reading Bunyan, I'm reading Sibs, I'm reading Manton, I'm reading Watson. And all of God's people said, what the heck is he talking about? We don't know. We share in Christ with one another at the Lord's table. But the Corinthians said, we now learned. That the idols we were worshiping represented fake 
gods. Who cares if we play around with their goofy little icons and eat their food that they sacrifice to their fake gods at the temple? You see, they had a correct theology. They got it. It's right. But they didn't care about their Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ who were absolutely shocked and scandalized that they had kept buying meat at the pagan temple meat market. They didn't care. All they cared about was having the right theological answer. You Jewish brothers and sisters, you guys just don't get it. It means nothing. They're fake gods. That idol's nothing. Give me a steak. And the poor Jewish brothers and sisters, although they were a little bit behind, their hearts were broken. Verses 19 to 22. What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No! You see? But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Great questions. Did you catch what Paul just taught us? He actually taught us something absolutely riveting that most Christians don't know. The New and the Old Testament, Deuteronomy and 1 Corinthians both agree. He's quoting Deuteronomy. They both agree that idol worship is really and truly demon worship. Watch this. False gods are not fake or imaginary. I'll repeat that because you probably didn't pay attention to what was just said. False gods are not fake or imaginary. That's not what is meant by false. They're real. False means they are real entities pretending to be true deities. They're not really gods, but they are real. What are they? They're demons. Baal, Molech, Ra, Ray, Isis, Osiris, Zeus, Poseidon, Hades, Apollo, Jupiter, Mars, Venus. They're real. Deuteronomy and 1 Corinthians both agree on this. The idol is just metal. The idol is just wood. The meat offered to it is just meat. But the worship, the worship is of an actual being Behind that idol. Something real is happening in those pagan temples. Don't you dare get close to any of that demonic stuff. That's what Paul's saying. Stop playing with fire. Yeah, the the idol's just metal. The meat's just meat. But what's going on there is worship of demons. Get out. 
Now, what did the immature Corinthians say? Verse 23, all things are lawful. How does Paul reply? But not all things are profitable. Their reaction? All things are lawful. Paul's reply? But not all things build up. Can you, blood-bought, born-again Christian, enter a pagan temple protected by Christ your king? Ab-so-stinking-lutely. But would that be profitable and build you up? Would that be profitable and build up Christians watching you? No. Not likely. If you have to ask whether Scripture forbids this thing you want to do, what are you failing to ask? Is it best for me? Is it best for my brothers and sisters in Christ? It's so sad that there are so many Christians who are forming their Christian life on whether or not there's a specific chapter or verse forbidding the activity in which they, w- they wish to engage. How worldly can I be without the word of God specifically saying, that's worldly? Reflect on what in your life is crippling your growth in Christ, is actually preventing you from growing in Christ because there's no verse that directly calls it sin. And so it's dominating you. What's keeping you from loving God and others? Fourthly and finally, freedom in Christ is slavery to salvation. And in salvation, I would include sanctification. Freedom in Christ is slavery to salvation. Verses 24 to 33. Let no one seek his own good, but that of the other person. Can you guys imagine if we lived this out to the max? Can you imagine how this place would utterly glow with love? Lost sinners would be attracted to this place in droves if we would not think of our own good, but that of others in the room. If coming to Tuesday nights, we were motivated not by, hey, who am I going to meet? What am I going to hear? I had nothing better to do. And we were motivated with, who can I bless? Who can I encourage? Who can I take, come alongside and help them follow Christ? Strengthen them. Verses 25 to 27. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's as well as its fullness. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. Translation. God made it. We can eat it. That settles it. You can eat anything you want. It's between you and God. Have a free conscience about it. However, what if a fellow believer, their conscience is violated by you eating that meat sacrificed to idols? I know it's not a modern problem that you and I have, but you can put in a whole bunch of things here. Consumption of alcohol would be a very easy one to plug in here. Can you drink alcohol? Absolutely. It's not sin. 
The Bible even prescribes it in certain situations. I'm willing to say that on the authority of God's word. But if you're sitting there with someone whose conscience is violated by the consumption of alcohol, and you know that, and you do it anyway, where is your love? Where's your love for them? You see? Verses 28 to 29, but if anyone says to you, this is meat consecrated to idols. You see, it's someone, it is probably a Jewish brother or sister who's looking at that going, oh my goodness, this meat, you bought this at the pagan temple meat market. Do not eat it. It's a command. Do not eat it. Not, it's up, you know, it's up for debate. It, discuss with them. Teach them more about it. Do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake, you might say, but my conscience isn't violated. Listen to what he says. I do not mean your conscience, but the other person's. You see how we're, we're slaves in love to one another. We're freed by Christ. He died as a slave and a criminal. He died a criminal in the eyes of the public for us, for our sins. How sad it is that we say, but I've got my rights. Can we say that in the shadow of a crucified king? It's horrible for a believer to impose their conscience on other believers. That's bad. And that makes a lot of unhealthy churches. It's equally awful for us to disregard the conscience of others. Now, how are we tempted to react? We're landing the plane. How are we tempted to react? What does our flesh say in response to this? Verse 29 to 30, this Paul gives words to what we're thinking. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with gratefulness, I'm eating the food. It tastes good. I say, hey, God made it. Thank you, Lord. I blessed it. Why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? Why does their conscience have to ruin my stake? We feel this, don't we? If it's good between me and God, y'all just shut up and deal with it. That's how we think. That's how our flesh thinks. But how does the Holy Spirit of God answer our pride? Verse 31 whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Translation, you cannot glorify God if you are not actively, selflessly, sacrificially loving one another. Can't do it. We can't glorify God while we pay no mind to one another. Glorifying God is not a private ordeal. It is very communal. We do it together. Verses 32 to 33. Give no offense either to the Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things. Not seeking my own profit but the profit of the many. So that they may be saved. 
You see, God opposes those of us who don't care if we offend people. And God also opposes those of us who live to please people. This text is not telling us to be people pleasers, but to do everything we can to love people without compromising the gospel and God's commands. Christ crucified does a beautifully fine job offending people on its own. But that is the only thing that should offend people in our lives. So love does not flash its rights. It does not parade its rights. Love slaves to win souls, just as our king. Father, we ask that you would work this word into our hearts as we prepare for small groups. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen. Thank you for joining me for this sermon from the Trinity College and Young Adult Ministry. We would love for you to join us in person soon. For up-to-date information, follow our Instagram at trinityc.ya. For information regarding Trinity Community Church, visit trinitycc.com. And if you're interested in a great Bible college here in the area, check out calchristiancollege.edu. Until he returns... May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you.